Hi, I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and this is our podcast, Sound Strategic, which is designed to showcase the talents of the terrific analysts here at the IISS. And today it is my great delight to introduce the analyst who single-handedly anchors the entirety of the IISS Middle East research. And what is even more impressive, that would never be um, that would never be visible if you didn't see Emil all over the newspapers, the radio, all the best outlets he is quoted in. And um, we are greatly privileged to have him with us since the year 2010. Before he came to the IISS, he was a columnist for the National, a fellow at the Stimson Center, actually started his career as a banker, and is just back to us here in London, having gone home to Lebanon for a little bit. Emil, thank you for coming to talk about your work. Thank you very much, Corey. Uh, I... This institution is so fortunate to have your creativity, your tough-mindedness on all of the work that you do, because you really do literally all of the work on the Middle East that we do. And we have a fabulous Middle East program. So in American baseball, which I know you don't deign to watch, we have a statistic that's really important for judging a baseball player, and it's called wins above replacement value. That is, how much would it, how much better is this person than anybody else who could do their job? And your wins above replacement value is enormous, my friend. So thank you for your good work. You just convinced me to watch baseball, so thank you very much. <laughs> so uh, as our listeners know, we have the same set of questions that we ask each of the analysts. And the first one is ridiculous to actually even ask you because it's what about your work has been in the news lately and i don't think in your or my lifetime your work has not been at the top of the news but tell us where you are what's going on in the world right now that really inspires your work and that you're spending your time on well, working on the Middle East is always exciting and depressing at the same time. So, yes, there is no lack of uh, news to analyze and provide context for. Uh, more recently, a couple of days ago, I was in, um, in Beirut uh, for uh, a round of interviews and, and you know, other research work. And I happened to be in town just as Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, uh, landed in Beirut with a very maximalist, tough anti-Iran message uh, in a country that is tilting more and more towards Iran. Um, so that was very interesting. And uh, what made it even more, in a way, exciting, certainly for Mr. Pompeo, but also for analysts like us, is that his trip started the day after the U.S., uh, announce its decision to recognize Israeli sovereignty over uh, the Golan Heists that it occupied since 1967. So all this made uh, Mike Pompeo's trip very controversial, very difficult, uh, carrying a maximalist uh, anti-Iran line, 
um, in a country that is, uh, you know, uh, quite divided on those issues uh, and where the U.S. is seen to be retreating. So a lot of the work recently has been to look at um, how do regional and local actors in the Middle East position themselves in this struggle between the U.S. and, and Iran? Uh, how do they read the various signals, the various messages that come from, from both capitals? And how this actually impacts um, the dynamics, both in terms of regional competition, but also in terms of prospects for conflict. So a lot of my work revolves around, around that. And, and just to take one example, talk about how uh, Iranian pressure and American withdrawal, coupled with this maximalist policy position that Pompeo was uh, in the region talking about, how does that affect Jordan? Well, Jordan is a country that has relied on many friends uh, for its own uh, uh, security, its own economic stability, uh, and its own place in the region for a very long time. It's one of those uh, pivotal states, not because they are intrinsically strong, but because they're quite agile, um, they can align with a variety of different uh, players in the region. Um, they are crucial uh, from an American and Israeli perspective to the security of Israel. Uh, they are crucial to the Saudis in terms of the, the protection of their northern border. Um, so Jordan is one of those countries that is finding it hard to navigate uh, this moment. Uh, on the one hand, they are undermined by um, Trump's uh, uh, recent policies on, on Israel and Palestine, such as moving uh, the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem um, or supposedly you know, coming uh, with a plan that actually uh, defers the prospect of an Israeli, uh, uh, of a Palestinian state forever, uh, therefore making Jordan the de facto Palestinian state, and, and certainly right. the monarchy there doesn't want that. On the other hand, the Iranians are uh, building a presence um, in, in southern Syria alongside the border with Jordan. Uh, there are real concerns about a accidental escalation, and Jordan itself is very worried in that sense. Um, and finally, the U.S. withdraw retrenchment, not withdrawal, retrenchment from the region means that Jordan needs to find new security interlocutors, and, and Russia has found that space to, uh, uh, to fill, and you know, is serving as a kind of mediator between the Jordanians and, and, and the Iranians and, uh, and the Assad regime and, and so on. So it's a situation that's very much in flux, uh, and if you're sitting in Amman today, uh, you're, you're feeling quite tense, you can, you're feeling quite worried about the dynamics around it, but that's a tragedy of small nations and uh, small states in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, how do you anticipate that the announcement, um, that the Trump administration's announcement about the Golan will affect the increasingly public security cooperation between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and other states. Will it help this along, or might it force the Arab states to take positions repudiating their cooperation? Well, certainly this was not a news that was welcomed in a number of Arab capitals. Um, but don't get me wrong. It, it's, they had, in a way, adjusted to the status quo um, over the Golan Heights. They didn't, they, they didn't care much. They didn't, it was an issue they didn't focus on. And in a way, the Trump administration raising this issue probably primarily 
to help uh, Bibi Netanyahu uh, in quite tense elections in Israel, um, forces them to take a stand. Right? It's a domestic uh, policy priority that somehow uh, you know, uh, inserts itself in the very messy geopolitics of, of, of the Middle East. I don't think it will affect that, um, I would say, rapprochement between the Gulf states and Israel. But at the same time, I think one should not exaggerate the extent of that, that rapprochement. Yes, there is a convergence in stress assessment. Uh, there is some transfer of technology. Uh, they certainly kind of agree on, on Iran and, 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 and others. But it's very difficult to see that rapprochement uh, having a op- uh, being operationalized, there are so many mm. obstacles on it. So this is a um, this is a complication, but nothing fundamental. But there are more structural reasons why the Gulf states and Israel will not be security partners in the, the short to medium term. Interesting. Before we go on to talk about how you got interested in this kind of work, I have one more current affairs uh, topic. I really liked your comments in an article not long ago about whether the next Arab Spring is already going on. Talk us through that argument, because I thought it was really compelling. I I think it's... um, The way we look at historical events uh, often is to think that uh, a chapter chapter opens and then ends, and then you move to um, something else. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the the tragedy in, in contemporary Arab politics is that... Um, all those factors that led to the Arab uprisings of 2011 are not just still present today, uh, but they're even more pronounced today than they were before. So I see this as a continuum. I don't see that as, you know, uh, Arab Spring 2.0. I just think that we've entered a period since 2011, but perhaps even before they were you know there were popular movements before but they didn't necessarily have the political impact that they certainly Iran not in to say uh, Iran in 2009 large demonstrations in Egypt in in, in prior years etc so i think it's, but but it's it's better to think about it in terms of continuum rather than separate chapters now of course this is going to play out very differently the, it's it's important i mean the way i look at it is the the Arab uprisings are like a wave. They, they all are, they, uh, they're composed of the same factors, the same grievances, the same demands, the same anger, the same frustrations, uh, you know, some very understandable, some quite problematic. But what matters is how this wave crashes. And so I like this metaphor where um, the impact depends on uh, on the kind of material that the wave crashes into. If it's sand, it can perhaps absorb that uh, that wave. If it's, you know, rock, then the wave will explode onto the shore. And, and so the, those uprisings will play out very differently um, in terms of time, in terms of intensity, in terms of outcome, um, depending on the the specific country, the specific conditions they're taking place into. So I see this as, you know, the ebb and flows of of, uh, street protests as being the new normal. This is something that we're going to have to live with until uh, the ruling class in each of these countries takes those grievances and and those demands seriously. It it doesn't mean that one should romanticize revolution, as we saw in the Middle East, um, also elsewhere, but the Middle East is the region I study, 
um, those those revolutions can take really uh, problematic terms. They can morph into civil wars. They can cause a massive damage. So one should not romanticize those those movements, but one should still understand the the very uh, um, fundamentals that drive this uh, uh, um, these movements. Yeah, and central to which is government governments not addressing the problems that people are protesting about, and second is the damage to individuals' lives and aspirations as a result of that. So I want to talk about how you got interested in this work, which again seems a little bit like an interesting question for you since you have lived so much of this. Well, I, I think uh, primarily it's, it's the fact that um, I'm Lebanese, uh, and I uh, grew up in Lebanon during some of the most uh, intense moments of our civil war. Um, and so as a kid, uh, you know, I've witnessed the violence, the damages. I, you know, uh, personally saw things that, uh, you know, was close to a massive car bombing once, uh, mm -hmm. was once stuck on a ski slope when uh, fighters from two different camps started shooting each other. Uh, and got, I mean, you know, things... Uh, anyway... A million episodes. So I was always interested in in the why. Why do people fight? What do they fight about? Is it identity versus interest versus something else? How do they organize? What explains the relative performance of militias vis-a-vis -vis others? Um, and then over time, it's about the geopolitics of all that. What are the, the broader forces? Um, so when you're, you know, 8, 10, uh, and you're a history buff as I was, and you know you 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 look at this chaos around you. You look at your parents doing their best to in order so that the family survives and 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 does well. And you know I just mentioned at times during the war we would go skiing or to the beach. Um, they were those lulls. Uh, it felt really bizarre at times. Yeah. Um, but understanding all that was always fascinating. The problem for me is that. Um, back then, I didn't see a professional path. I mean, I didn't understand what to do with that passion I had. So for five years, I studied and worked a little bit in, in finance. And uh, believe me, it's kind of weird to, uh, um, to imagine what, what could have been had I stayed in that business. I'm much <laughs> happier studying uh, the mess uh, in, my, in my wonderful in, uh, uh, Middle East. And then the path to journalism from there, what made you decide to leave finance um, and to invest yourself much more in expertise as, as a scholar, as, a, as somebody who explains a very complicated region to the rest of us? Well, 9-11 changed the lives of many. Uh, it also changed mine. Uh, so on 9-11, I saw what was happening, and I realized that my heart was not into banking. Uh, and that there was a world to study, to make sense of. Um, perhaps it was, it's impossible to make sense of that world, but, you know, at least let's try. And so, um, instead, and, and I always knew that I, was, I wanted to work on the Middle East. So instead of flying to the Middle East to make sense of that, I decided to actually fly to the U.S. to get a, my graduate education and see how the U.S. would look at that region, knowing that a few years later I would go back to my region. And that's what I did. And uh, to be honest, my, my time in the U.S. was transformative. Um, uh, you know, 
a lot of things are said about Washington and how it functions. I was quite struck by how open and welcoming uh, the community was there. Uh, I'm not saying it's uh, necessarily uh, the outcomes are always good. It's easy to, to operate. But um, I got there during the run-up to the Iraq War. And uh, so I started graduate school in 2002 and ended in 2004. And it was fascinating to see the, the debate take place in, in, in the public uh, arena. And that's one thing I, I brought back, um, the fact that, no, the U.S. is not a country controlled by a few interests and, you know, bankers and others and, you know, decisions are made in one boardroom and, and saying that actually it was a chaotic policy environment where people struggle, uh, a lot is done in, in the open, people uh, um, uh, come up with policy positions that they fight for intensely and look for allies and play the media and so on. And for me, it was a dizzying experience in a way. Mm. And then I, real, I realized that even as a, you know, non-American, I'm French and Lebanese, um, I still had my place uh, in, in, in that community. People would listen, they would engage, we would you know, sometimes shout at each other. Um, it is my favorite thing about the American government that it's so porous that you don't have to be working in it to affect its policies. People actually read op-eds in the newspaper. It actually matters that you have an argument about ideas and about how you carry yeah. them out. Yeah, I mean, I say, this is one of the few uh, you know, major powers where uh, even as an outsider, you can have a voice, you can try to push. The, the outcome is not necessarily, will not necessarily fit uh, your uh, uh, your worldview, your interests, and so on. But you have this opportunity. I'm, I'm trying to think: Had I gone to Moscow, uh, you know, for my graduate school, would I be able to operate the same way and and and, and argue here and there? But you also s get used to something else about um, the the American system. I, I think. Yeah. And that's also something I brought back to the Middle East, but it's very difficult to explain. Is that the Americans are not Machiavellian and, you know, going after, you know, it, they didn't go to Iraq because of oil or, you know, but that's more tangible for people to, to believe. I think Americans were essentially idealistic, uh, naive, and at one level incompetent. And, and what I try to say... I think all three of those things are true. What, what I try to say is that this is a country that couldn't imagine that putting Iraq together in 2003 would be so difficult because that's a country that sent a man to the moon. You know, this belief in technology and technological solution and, this, and the belief that, you know, you can build some common goal that will uh, outweigh, you know, um, community uh, interests and, and, and so on. I mean, I was quite struck uh, by this, this belief in, in kind of well-intentioned social engineering um, yeah. that I, I did, this is why I ended up opposing the Iraq war. I feel like it's both the great strength and the great weakness mm -hmm. of the U.S. as an international force because on the one hand, we believe things are possible that others would never believe are possible. On the other hand, we unleash chaos and, and other people bear the consequences of our very often ineffectual engagements in things. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, American policymakers um, are faced with the kind of challenges that very few others do because of the sense, whether it's founded or not, uh, I have my own opinions on that, but um, 
that they have a special responsibility, that you know, there are guarantors of specific norms or, or architects of an order that needs to be sustained and so on. And no one else really has to think about those challenges in the interconnected ways that, that Americans have to do. And so there's so much expectation, there's so much free riding at times um, you know, that, that happen. You know, it's such an interesting point, because when I was the director for defense strategy on the NSC doing coalition management for the Iraq war, um, I used to always challenge folks who would complain about what a bad job we were doing, which parenthetically I agreed with, um, to say, what should we do instead? Because there is a common temptation simply to criticize American choices without acknowledging what you just said, which is very often we're doing the best we can and it's not that good. Well, I mean, I think, I think you know, we'll, we'll keep on talking about the Iraq war forever. But one thing that is not, even though I was against the intervention, one thing that's not well acknowledged and actually is pervasive even in today's discussion is that in 2003, the containment system of Iraq was unraveling. Yeah. You know, there would be other challenges. Iraq was not a stable country under Saddam. You know, you had massive massacres really against nice Shias in the south and the Kurds in the north. And it's, in, in, of course, we can focus on the WMD issue, and that's certainly, and it's deserved. Uh, but we, we often like think in terms of the counterfactuals that somehow prove our points. And I think even if the U.S. invasion hadn't happened, we would still had an Iraq problem, perhaps not the same one, perhaps not as big. And guess what? Across the Middle East, it's not as if governance would have gotten better without the, without the intervention and invasion. So there is a temptation to blame the outsider, blame uh, uh, you know, the, the, the U.S. and so on, because we want to run away from our own responsibilities. That is an excellent point. I want you to tell me what your favorite book in your field is. Um, I, it's, it's a difficult one. And so I, I would say uh, the book that helped me structure my thinking the most about the conflicts that I study um, is uh, The Logic of uh, uh, Political Violence uh, in Civil Wars by Statis Kalivas. Um, I think it's the one book, among others, I mean, there are a bunch of other, but that really gave me an understanding of how civil wars occur, how various armed groups see themselves and each other, how they use violence for very specific reasons, and how actually civilians are not, uh, you know, that group that you can ignore in a war, but that they're actually quite central. Um, you... you coerce, you punish civilians, or you try to co-op them, and so on, to actually uh, gain uh, not just territory, but legitimacy and others. And I think that's one of the books that really uh, helped me understand this, especially as I uh, was covering the Syrian uh, uh, uprising that you know, morphed into, into a multidimensional civil war. Um, and, and you know, I remember rereading re that book just as the chemical weapons attacks were happening in Syria. And back then, and still this is uh, an axe I have to grind, is that a lot of people in the proliferation community didn't believe or didn't think that, you know, um, uh, uh, didn't understand the purpose of those chemical weapons attacks. Um, and, uh, you know, for them it was something that you deploy on the battlefield, but these were civilians and it was, the, you know, the, the kind of evidence we needed to take a stand was pretty high. And for me it was, no, Assad 
it, it had an enemy-centric strategy uh, during the war. He wanted to punish communities that supported or did not fight against the rebels. He wanted to punish them, force them to go away, triggering one of the largest refugee and IDB crises in history. Um, and it made sense. It was a, there was a strategic campaign uh, uh, in which chemical weapons were, were a central element of that. So trying to understand what the sinking was in terms of the civilians was essential. And that's one of the books that helped me uh, understand that. Of course, the book itself doesn't address the Syrian civil war, but it gave me the framework I needed. Okay, I've never read it, so thank you for that. I look forward to the education. You have already identified two areas in which the conventional wisdom about the Middle East is wrong. Uh, the first, that Iraq was somehow stable and the sanctions regime holding in the run-up to the Iraq war. And second, the non-proliferation perspective on the use of chemical weapons by Bashar al-Assad. So I'm going to skip the question about conventional wisdom because I feel like you've already given two great answers. I would have... Uh, uh, oh, go! Uh, Give I us a third! I think, go! I think there is one um, that I, I hold to heart, uh, um, which is this notion that... To, kind of, to stabilize the Middle East, um, the solution is for Iran and Saudi Arabia to share the region. And that was a central message of President Obama back in April 2016 uh, in an interview uh, in The Atlantic, in which he said, essentially, if we want the region to stabilize and so on, um, you know, those two countries need to figure out you know, and accept, you know, those fears of influence and, and, and so on. And, and then the, the whole section is quite worth reading. And, and back then, um, President uh, Obama essentially offered this, this view. There was some pushback, but over time, it has become more and more accepted in, in, the, in policy communities that, uh, you know, those are two uh, troublesome countries, and if only they could find a way to share the region, things would get better. Um, and I see that increasingly in, in some discussion, not just in the U.S., elsewhere. It's also an underlying foundation of this whole notion in political science of offshore balancing. Yes. That the U.S. just withdraws from the region, lets the countries in the region solve it, and that this will magically make the world a better place. And this regional equilibrium is a wonderful abstract concept on paper. It will feed the pages of our journals and foreign affairs and uh, speeches by, uh, you know, a number of presidential candidates and so on, I find it very problematic. I mean, I would say that first what the region needs is less of Iran and less of Saudi Arabia, not that, that construct. The second one is that it that creates framing. a kind of equivalence between those two powers that is unwarranted at that point. However problematic and very problematic Saudi behavior has been recently, Iran is still qualitatively different in that matter, in how it pursues power, how it nurtures uh, regional partners, uh, what a revisionist country uh, it is um, in that sense. So, you know, this, this notion that, okay, they're both equally bad, so if they both could agree on that and things will come down, it's, it's a lot of wishful thinking, and I think it's wishful thinking that is spreading around. Um, I'm, I'm fighting a losing battle, I think, on that one, but I, I'll, I'll still do it. I will fight um, right alongside you on that one. I think you're exactly right. Okay, 
best work you think you've ever done? What's your favorite thing you have written, have produced, have participated in? I think my the contribution to the field I made was to help put in context the Syrian civil war, like trying to explain what the the calculations uh, of the various uh, actors, regional actors, were, and understand that. Uh, yes, they fueled uh, this uh, this conflict, but they were not alone in it, that they had very different instruments, very different strategies in, in the process. So I, I spent quite a lot of time um, you know, on, on this issue, published uh, quite widely in our publications and, and, and elsewhere. But my best piece, I think, uh, would be one I, I, I wrote uh, in anger almost uh, in, in 2016, uh, in War on the Rocks, um, where you know there was some uh, a, a, a smart, uh, informed uh, uh, counterpart who wrote a piece um, about about Syria, explaining that uh, actually the world has it wrong. Uh, you know, the, the Assad regime is is the best thing uh, that could happen in Syria. That uh, uh, you know, it's all extremists on the other side, and and so on. And I, I remember reading that piece, and it was. It was just based on a number of bad assumptions, uh, bad messages. I mean, flawed real understanding of how political violence is deployed and so on. So I went and I typed it and someone you know uh, well edited it. And uh, just a matter of of a couple of days, it, it was out. And my point is, ultimately, you have to look at this region um through so many different prisms. Uh, you know, violence is local, is national, is regional. Um, this interplay of factors is, is constant. You can't really isolate the, the drivers of, of all that. I mean, it's useful as an intellectual exercise. Um, but fundamentally, we have to understand that it is really the, what we see in this region is the poorest and the weakest in our societies. Taking being on the losing end of massive dynamics and fueling those. Uh, the, so it's not just a context of, uh, uh, a contest of ideologies and so on. It is, at the very basic level, access to resources, of ser- uh, services, having a basic level of dignity and so on. And if we decide to make it just about regional competition or global competition and so on, we're missing something that's way bigger than, than that. You know, one of my very favorite books about our field, about foreign policy, uh, is a novel from 1958 called The Ugly American, and it makes exactly that point. To the extent that our policies are humane and care about people's problems, they will be successful. To the extent they are grandiose and ideological, they will fail. And I think that's fundamental. Last question. What's your favorite data visualization. I'll tell you one of my favorite data visualizations, which is a map you made of Syria about maybe six or eight months ago when you and I were giving a talk together. It's extraordinary. What's your favorite visualization? Thank you. Um, When I don't agonize about the Middle East, I agonize about climate change. So uh, you can imagine uh, that, uh, you know, there are few happy moments in my life, but not when (laughs) I'm uh, intellectually engaged. Um, uh, I I found there's a, a, a research center called uh, Climate Brief. I think uh, let me just uh, uh, yeah uh, Carbon Brief. Sorry, Carbon Brief. Carbon Brief. Yeah, that actually compiled all these complex scientific studies uh, that has 
that have all this data about how all this will impact our world and you know in terms of of rain or drought or food production and uh, uh, you know a million different indicators and they they put it out on uh, it's it's available on 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 the internet on their website carbonbrief.org and it helps you visualize uh, the various scenarios in terms of uh, uh, temperature increases, you know, 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees, uh, and, and, and beyond. Uh, it's very well done. It helps people um, understand, uh, you know, in a very simple way, understand how climate change or different types of climate change will impact them or their kids or grandkids. Um, and that's... Uh, I, and, and I find the, the message to be quite simple and, and striking, um, so I encourage everyone to look at it. It's breakdown by region. We will post the link to it as well as your map on Syria so that okay. people can go easily and get the education that's, that's driving you um, in such interesting directions. Perfect. My friend Emil, thank you so much for making time to give this master class of understanding about political violence, about the Middle East, I love your metaphor about uh, protests being a wave crashing across the region. It was interesting. I never knew how seminal 9-11 was in your own professional development. So that was really interesting. I learned a lot from you about the things you think are wrong about the Middle East, that, that the sanctions regime was unstable in Iraq before 2003. Uh, what non-proliferation experts miss about Bashar al-Assad's use of chemical weapons, uh, a book to go read about the origins of political violence, uh, the regional equilibrium that you would like to see, which is less Saudi and less Iran. I'm ardently in favor of that. Um, and, and I really appreciate the excellent work you do for this institution. Emil Hakan, thank you. Thank you very much, Corinne.